Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, November 19, 2018, is a Petraeus Hertog Lecture on Leadership. In this talk, Brett McGurk, who was appointed Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIS by President Barack Obama, joins General David Petraeus to discuss United States policy in the global fight against ISIS. Um, this evening, I have a wonderful privilege, uh, and that is to introduce to you, by interviewing him, uh, one of the true unsung heroes of the last 17 years of war against Islamist extremists. Uh, you heard the positions that he's held. Those are just a few, and we'll go through some of this so you have a sense of what it is that he's done uh, for our country during this time. Uh, Brent has been a little bit like Michael Corleone in the Mafia. You know, he, he kept trying to go straight. He kept trying to leave government, and then he would get sucked back in uh, because there would be yet another crisis. Uh, needless to say, he served for a Republican administration, then a Democratic administration, and now another Republican administration. Uh, presidents do indeed keep coming back to him time and again. Uh, the reasons for that are really pretty straightforward, and I think you'll see this. Uh, he is exceedingly bright. Uh, he's unbelievably hardworking and focused. But perhaps most of all, he's just he's very modest. He has a, his ego is very much uh, in check, which is, not, is a, which is really a very rare quality in the circles in which I used to travel, uh, probably <laughs> in, including me. Um, but he's one of those individuals... Um, about whom you say that we thank him for what he did, uh, but also the way in which he did it, Uh, because he has done extraordinary work, uh, indefatigable. Um, His travel schedule is is worse than anybody's I know, including mine, and that is saying a fair amount. Uh, And so it is a pleasure to uh, interview him here tonight. Um, You know, people often say, gee, you know, thanks, General, for all that you did after 9-11. You know, you were deployed a lot, and I was. Uh, I think it was something like seven and a half of the last ten years uh, were engaged in a variety of deployments, including four years in Iraq. Uh, But the truth is, as you'll find out, uh, Brett has done even more. And so with that, let's get to know uh, someone who was uh, educated just up the street. So why don't you start out and just tell us where you were born and raised and went to school. Well, first, let me just say what an introduction, and thank you so much. And uh, Roger, uh, it's really an honor to be here uh, with all of you, and um, it's truly a, a real blessing to be here with you. Um, so, started, yeah, I grew up in central Connecticut. Um, I went to public school in Connecticut. I went to um, Conrad High School in West Hartford. I went to University of Connecticut, and I came here for law school just up the street at Columbia. Mm-hmm. So I spent um, in the late 90s, a very different time in the world, but 96 to 99, um, law up, in, review. up in Morningside Heights, so it was Law Review. And what did you do after law school? And then I actually lived right up here in the Upper West Side at 79th and Amsterdam, and I did two clerkships after law school, one um, on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals downtown for uh, Judge Dennis Jacobs. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, interestingly, a professor of mine at Columbia, uh, Judge, now Judge Jerry Lynch, had just gotten confirmed to be a trial court judge in the SDNY. 
So I clerked on the federal trial court, which was a great way to start a career uh, right, out of, right out of law school. And apparently made a bit of a name for yourself because then you got a call from Washington. Right. So then when you clerk on the, on the federal courts, you, uh, you apply to the Supreme Court and see if lightning can strike. And I was fortunate to get an interview with then Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, so took the train down to see him and uh, very fortunate to get that job. So after the two clerkships here, I, went, I moved to Washington to clerk for uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. An interesting time, it was right after, it was um, 2001, right after Bush v. Gore was decided. So that was kind of the issue, obviously, in the country, and to go join the Supreme Court. Um, I, I joined a little bit early, so that it had already been decided, but the clerkship class that had decided that very intense case um, I just remember they're really kind of in competing camps. It was a pretty intense uh, period, real partis- partisan period. Mm-hmm. Um, so my clerk... Unlike now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but interesting, so my class arrived, and we kind of said to ourselves, we're going to try to all get along. There's 35 uh-huh. uh, clerks on the court, and you're all in pretty close quarters, literally. Um, but then we start the term... Um, well, really, in the summer, you start as clerks. It term doesn't start till October, but on September 11th, uh, the whole you know the country changed, obviously. So, um, I was there. I happened to be on the Supreme Court on 9/11, and that you know changed obviously the course of history, course of the country, course of my own life. So, you do that clerkship. You actually spend a year, as I recall, or so in in private practice, uh, and then you get called into government in January 2004, as I recall, because I was there at that time as a two-star up in the north, commander of the 101st Airborne Division, you show up in Baghdad. I, yeah, I knew, uh, I was always drawn to public service, so I, I thought um, a career as a federal prosecutor, solicitor general type thing, that's kind of what I was on the trajectory to do. Um, but after 9-11, I remember Chief Justice Rehnquist actually told me about the, that I had just worked, had been working downtown, just moved to uh, Washington. And we went in to see the Chief Justice every morning at 9 o'clock, and um, he said, a plane just hit the you know, World Trade Center. Yep. And of course, like everyone thought, my God, what a terrible accident. Yep. Um, and on the court at that time, we didn't have internet or anything, so it was just rumors, and obviously everything just uh, uh, unfolded. So that really was a, a searing moment for all of us, um, to say the least. But throughout that year, talking a lot to the justices, the chief justice, about different public service careers. Um, I, was, I wanted to do something in the nations at war. It was a question of what. So I went into private practice uh, for a little bit and then got a, a phone call from a former colleague who was at the Treasury Department at the time in late 2003 about the issues you're dealing with in Iraq, but on the political side, trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? And they were working on uh, a constitutional process to try to set up a constitution, to try to establish a government, to try to get out of the the real vacuum that had opened up. And he said, you know, would you be willing to come help with some of this, just on the constitutional side, because I've been working those issues. So it's hard to say no to that. So I said yes, and I got to Iraq um, first week of January 2004. And what was your assessment? Um, you know, I landed, uh, I remember landing thinking it's much colder than I thought. It's pretty cold in Iraq in January. It can get cold um, in the winter, yeah. 
And I remember uh, I got picked up at the airport uh, in a Humvee, and we drove about 110 miles into what uh, was then the green zone. And thinking, this yeah, is yeah, not, this is not later going. would be the most dangerous road. In the even world, at the, the time, it road. was uh, yeah. still burnt out cars on the side of the road. Yeah. And I thought, first, you're not in Kansas anymore. I've never seen something like that. Yeah. And um, just thinking, this isn't really going well. That was my first my first impression. <laughs> So the situation was, of course, that we'd gotten in there. Uh, the, all the assumptions that we'd been told, I remember asking these when I was in Kuwait um, as, a, again, a division commander on the eve of going into the fight to Baghdad. And, and I remember I actually did ask uh, someone. They said, anybody got any questions? And uh, I said, yeah, could you just get into a little bit more detail again of what happens after we get to Baghdad and we take down the regime? And and a retired three-star who was in charge of the, the fight after the fight uh, stood up and said, Dave, you just get us to Baghdad. We'll take it from there. Um, that group actually only lasted a couple of weeks. They brought in the Coalition Provisional Authority. They brought in Ambassador Bremer. Uh, there were some decisions that were fairly catastrophic, like firing the military without telling them what their future was and then firing all the Ba'ath Party members without having a reconciliation process. So I, mean, I got there in January 2004 yeah. after all those decisions yes. had been made. So. All this is done. So, <laughs> yeah. so the point is that, that that all started us spiraling downward. And there had been a hope. You know, the expectation was, well, just get rid of Saddam. We just hand it to whoever's left standing. And all these great uh, individuals who have been outside the country for all these years and have been so impressive to us in London and Washington and elsewhere, they're going to go in, they'll take charge, and they can put it all together themselves. And, of course, we'd begun to realize by the time Brett arrived that this was not the case. And, of course, there was no reconciliation, and the Sunni-Shia divide was very, very substantial, and the Arab-Kurd divide was just as substantial. So he arrives, and the coalition provisional authority is trying to figure out how in the world do we make progress, how do we get an embassy stood up, and how do we start handing off to Iraqis? Yeah, so when I arrived, like legally, interesting, we were an occupying power. We yes. declared ourselves an occupying power. Incredible power, by the way, for yeah, guys on meant, the ground. I which mean, meant you, you're we the executive, were the legislative, and the judicial all in one. It was sort of heady until And which is crazy in the Arab world to, to declare yourself an occupying power. But yep. we had done that. So we had, we were, uh, and a little group of lawyers that I was working with, um, we had supreme legal authority over the country, yep. Which, yep. Was, um, which was crazy. Um, but there was a big debate at the time, and I, I worked with Paul Bremer at the time, about the security situation, which was just unraveling. And um, did we have enough forces in the country? Did we have the right, you know? And um, so that really kind of uh, was, a, was a major issue early on. I remember Bremer debating with General Sanchez, who was the commanding general at the time. Yep. You know, well, we would hear from Sanchez, you've got to get the politics in the right place. And Bremer would say, you've got to get the security in the right yep. place. Um, there was just this constant yes. back and yep. forth. Yep. In any event, I, it was in not my, the height of civil military relations right. in Baghdad. It was, shall uh, we say. It, was it was a, a pretty was difficult pretty, situation. Pretty broken. And I, yep. my little area at this at the time was working with uh, the Iraqis on this constitutional yep. process, and it was a unique experience because I worked with all of the Iraqi leaders who are still actually the leaders. Yep. So. Um, Iraq just chose a new prime minister. His name is Adel Abdelmedi. He was actually one of uh, a main contact of mine yep. back in those days. I remember. 
So I got man. to know all of them and trying to grapple with this very difficult situation in the country. Um, in any event, we did do an interim constitution. Uh, the CPA era, the occupation era, ended yep. in June. We worked on a transition to handing over to the Iraqis, so they had legal authority in June of 2004. And so I kind of helped organize some of that in that transition process. Um, of course, uh, they had no real capability. But by the way, I was brought back in just a couple months in 2004 to do an assessment of the situation for the Secretary of Defense. I went back and reported out to him, gave him a bunch of recommendations. He said, great, get back over and implement them. This is trying to stand up the Iraqi security forces for which we had no real provisions or plans. Um, so the Iraqis take control, but they have no real capability. We're the capability. Uh, and then, But anyway, you have at least handed off something that was reasonably rational. Uh, and then you go back to the White House. And what did you do at that point in time? Right. So I worked with the, ambassador, the first ambassador out there, John Negroponte, and then through various um, yep. the people I know. And I was asked to join the NSC staff in the, Bush, in the second Bush term. So mm-hmm. shortly after he won a second term, I joined the White House staff. Never worked in a White House before. Mm-hmm. Um, but with really great people, Steve Hadley, the National Security Advisor, yep. uh, Megan O'Sullivan, I worked yep. with, um, of course, you and everyone else on the team. Um, but really struggling from the White House perspective of the difference between the Washington debate and what you had just seen on the ground. Yes. I mean, honestly, there were some relatively senior officials describing Iraq as a Garden of Eden, even in those days. I remember That, you know, this is all, we're about to turn the corner. Insurgency and, uh, was a bad word for a very long say, period we of time. We're not, we're not about the to turn. Description. We're not about yeah. to turn the corner. Yep. And... Um, uh, my early impressions of President Bush, who I got to know quite well, in, those, in the first two years of his second term, uh, was that he was very much, he had made the decision as the commander-in-chief to go to war, and he was delegating his, his idea of how to be the commander-in-chief. You delegate to the chain of command. That means to the Secretary of Defense and to the generals, and they mm-hmm. run the war. That was very much his, yep. uh, his thought process. He doesn't want to be LBJ, kind of looking at yep. bombing targets. That was a very driving philosophy for him. Um, the problem was coming up from the chain of command and the information coming to him was a much rosier picture than what yep. I had seen and what I had experienced. Mm-hmm. So we as NSC staffers also wrote him a report every night, um, every single night. Mm-hmm. Someday these will come out. They're in the archives. Um, a four-page report with the casualty reports every wow. day and the situation, political, economic, security, and uh, pretty dire. And it kept getting more and more dire. Right. Until 2006, when this horrific event, the bombing of the Samara Mosque. So 2006, um, Iraq has an election, which went okay. And uh, then there was a bombing, uh, al-Qaeda bombing, of a, of a major Shia mosque in a town called Samara in February 2006. In, in, which a, the, in a Sunni town, which right. normally took it very seriously to right. secure that. But that uh, it, but it just... Um, what had been a fledgling civil war sectarian yeah. conflict, like the bottom just really fell out yeah. of everything. And um, so this is when everything kind of came to a head. So for those of us who might have thought... Throughout that year, just right. spiraling violence. And I actually went out, similar to you, go out, yeah. do a, you know, come back with a report. Yeah. And I went out for a month, and I came back with a report. Um, we're not about to turn the corner. We don't have enough mm-hmm. forces. We don't secure it. You can't do anything without basic yeah. security. Uh, but that still was very, it was not a popular uh, decision. 
So a couple things happened in the White House personnel changes. Um, the president changed the Secretary of Defense at the time. After um, the disastrous midterm election. Right. So yeah, that's right. Republicans lose control of the Senate, having already lost control of the House. And a new chief of staff comes in. Uh, yes, right. Josh Bolton Josh, comes yep. in. Very good man. Josh, so the chief of staff kind of is a, the court conductor for what information is getting to the president. And Josh is trying to grapple with what he's hearing from us on the team and what he's hearing from uh, the chain of command. Yep. And um, so that led to a strategic review of the entire Iraq strategy, mm-hmm. uh, which ultimately led to a dramatic shift uh, in the overall policy um, to send 30,000 additional American troops to Iraq, which was a very unpopular decision. Yep based upon a strategic construct that you helped develop that I think was pretty sound. Um, but I remember talking to the West Wing. When we were, when I we can were, neither comment. I cannot comment right. or <laughs> cannot confirm or deny right. that as a three-star general I was maneuvering. Well, the chain of the, command, frankly, wasn't working. So uh, we had to, yeah. we came up with, um, we came up with a new strategy outside yeah. of that process, frankly. Um, and a new commander and a new ambassador. Right. So the whole team changed. And a new but, central command commander. Right, everything. Yeah. Um, not everyone in that process supported the new strategy. No, no, no. The central right, commander right, was not, yeah. didn't buy in totally. But that was uh, as long as the president was with us. But the thing is, the president at the time, President Bush, um, made this, this very fateful decision to send 30,000 American troops to Iraq. And I spent a lot of time with him in those days. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we went down to Fort Benning, actually, to see troops deploying, talk yep. to families, yep. um, uh, Gold Star families. Um, very emotional for the president. I saw it with my own eyes. Um, also, a big political risk. And there sure. was an internal poll at the White House about, they asked Americans, would you support sending 30,000 more American troops to Iraq? And the result came back, something like 23% of Americans would support sending uh, that many yep. troops to Iraq. And one of the political people, the White House, commented to me, another poll that was conducted, do you believe in alien-piloted UFOs? More Americans believe, significantly more Americans believe in alien-piloted UFOs <laughs> than would have supported this. So, but I was in the White House with Steve Hadley in the West Wing, and the president made this address to the nation that yep. we're going to send, and yep. here's why. And it was, um, it was a very faithful moment. Yeah. Um, in any event, and then kind of the rest is history. Sure. Well, but compare him after that decision, because... He now takes charge of the war. Yeah, so I ref- when I reflect on that time with President Bush, and I've talked to him a lot about this, um, I kind of worked for two presidents, and at least from the issues this I was working on. That's my impression as well, by the way. The, and this, again, this is the second term. I can't speak to the first yep. term. Um, but the second half of the second term. The first half of the second term, again, commander-in-chief delegating to yep. my commanders. Um, second half, the most hands-on commander-in-chief imaginable. So uh, if you read Elliot Cohen's Supreme Command, it talks about this. There's an ethos that, well, a civilian commander should delegate to the generals and the experts. And the lesson of that book, and Lincoln and everyone know, you have to be, only only in the Oval Office can you see all the components of, of war, from political to dealing with Congress to the public opinion. And so the president has to be very hands on. So in the last two years of his presidency, every morning at 8.45, pretty extraordinary, nearly every morning, uh, he had a very small meeting in the, in the Situation Room in which General Petraeus and Ambassador Crocker at the time plugged in, 
to talk about the situation and what Actually, we had we, to do. we did a video conference. We did what we did was seven thirty Eastern Standard Time every Monday morning, seven thirty to eight thirty, with a whole national security team. So right. the entire week started. No, that's what I did. Yeah, that com- meeting, yeah, seven yeah, thirty. Yeah, I forgot the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, I mean, it's even early yeah. for Washington. But every um, sing- every morning. And it was a small meeting, so I was in there as a But as then the you had a director. daily meeting, I think, you and Megan O'Sullivan every, and others. Yeah. yeah, so every morning in the Oval, the president wanted his first briefing on Iraq yeah. every day. And then every Monday morning with the national security team right. and you dialing in from yep. the field. Yep. This is unprecedented in terms of how a president Before or directs. after. It we was did a product once of, a month after, and, and it would get bumped yeah. around. And, and it was a product of secure communications. Yep. Everything else allowed it yep. to happen. But it allowed us to make decisions quickly um, and to turn turn around what was a pretty hopeless uh, situation before then. The truth is it enormously empowered the commander and the ambassador as well, because at the end of the day, nobody was going to be between us and the president. And they knew, and I actually a couple of times said to my boss, I know this is a difficult decision for you. I know that's why it's been sitting in your inbox for the last four weeks. We do have a war going on here. I can take no for an answer, I guess, but you probably ought to tell the president first because right. I will right after. Uh, it was that kind of attitude, um, and they knew that I could go to the president. And I wrote a memo back every Sunday night, as you recall, ostensibly to the Secretary of Defense, the commander of uh, Central Command, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but I knew that it was also being sent in to you in the White House. Right. Uh, so we had this incredible direct connection with the commander-in-chief and that gave you the ability, if you wanted to, to drop the most massive dime uh, in the entire bureaucracy. And we, on occasion, did do some of that. Uh, the ambassador and I thought this was our last job in life, and we acted that way. So, but, but again, Brett was a huge part uh, of supporting all of this. And, of course, the, you know, the, the campaign does succeed. It does drive violence down. We change every one of the big ideas and the strategic concept 180 degrees and again, the president really empowered this more than he was. He wasn't micromanaging. He was just supporting us in the most unbelievable way imaginable. So you you then stay through all that. Uh, but then, of course, we also kept calling on him when there were problems. So in 2008, a year into the surge, over a year into the surge, uh, the president's starting to worry about how does he hand this off to to President Obama, and so you're brought back out because, frankly, the embassy and I, our team, had not been able to negotiate with Prime Minister Maliki what it was, the so-called strategic framework agreement. So, well, President Bush, in the, starting the spring of 2008, started to ask us in the morning, um, okay, what am I handing off to the next guy or gal? Because uh, Hillary Clinton, it looked like, might be the nominee of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party, and uh, I yep. think... He actually, I think, I don't know if he'd acknowledge this, but in talking to him at the time, I think there was an assumption that a Democratic president's likely to come in. That means you're going to have a transition from one president to another in wartime, which Mm -hmm. is rare, with the war being the issue in the country on which the Democratic nominee would be running. So he was very focused on how do we manage this transition Mm -hmm. when it comes in a way that we can carry on with what was then a succeeding uh, effort. And we had a couple problems when we looked at how to do this. We looked at historical examples. Um, Our legal basis for being in Iraq at the time was under a U.N. Security Council resolution that was about to expire at the end of 2008, so at the end of the Bush term. Mm -hmm. And its renewal was not a certainty. 
So if we didn't have that, or the whole basis for being in Iraq would have been, um, actually it would have been called into question, would have been illegal. Um, it turned out in the fall, uh, the Russians invaded Georgia. We had a big problem in the Security Council, so we probably would not have been able to get a new resolution mm -hmm. regardless. But in the spring, the president said, well, let's get out of this Security Council resolution. Uh, we don't want to rely on the UN. Let's try to negotiate with the Iraqis a, a bilateral arrangement mm -hmm. so that we're there with, the, with their agreement. Uh, but that's a difficult endeavor. That requires something called a status of forces agreement. That's what allows our troops to be in a foreign country on sovereign soil. They take years to negotiate. Yep. Um, in the Arab world, these are all documents that are pretty secret. They're not kind of to public scrutiny, yep. um, just given the nature of Arab systems in that part of the world. This would have to be a relatively public process. that would go through the Iraqi parliament. So, and anyway, we, we did the the uh, risks of doing this, but the president said, no, we have to, let's try to get this done. But so, of course, in the end, we can't, because I'm, I'm starting to think that we, we haven't even gotten to ISIS yet. Yeah. So eventually, you get a strategic framework agreement. So we did two agreements. Marathon one was a, negotiating one was a strategic framework agreement, which is an overall, just organizes the relationship, yeah. but then a SOFA to allow our troops to stay. But to get that through the Iraqi system, uh, at the end, we had we put a timeline on it, so it expired in three years. And we thought at the time, well, it can be easily extended because mm -hmm. it wouldn't have to go through this whole big elaborate process and mm -hmm. go through a parliament and things. So we would give the new administration three years to figure things out and then mm -hmm. extend that document if they could. So we yep. thought we handed off a pretty stable foundation. So you were done with that. Uh, President Obama wins the election. Uh, you stay on, as I recall. And didn't you, in fact, go back to Iraq for a period of time? I did. So I stayed on. Yeah, I stayed on with the Obama team uh, mm -hmm. for a bit, and then there was a gap between ambassadors, and I went out um, spring of 2009 for about mm -hmm. six months. I didn't intend to stay for very long, and I didn't, I didn't yep. stay very long. So you didn't actually get out for a year, do something with Council on Foreign Relations. Obviously, you're going to write a book. Right. Uh, but that doesn't... Yeah, it came out at, 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 the, yeah. actually at the Council of Foreign Relations uh, just across the park here Yep, uh, to write a book on the Bush administration. That was the plan. And I got called back in, really kind of asked to come back in at a pretty high level, and it was hard to say no, mm -hmm. um, in 2010. Oh, that's around the election. Right. So Iraq had just had an election that was basically a kind of Bush v. Gore comes to Iraq. It was a tie. Um they were unable to form a government right. after months and months. And so um, uh, they asked me to come back to try to help with that. Very uh -huh. difficult. And one reason that we wanted to try to get the Iraqi, new Iraqi government in place was to extend what would be the document on which our troops are there, which is going to expire in a year. So it was a pretty uh, dicey period. So this, the, the two leading candidates, the prime minister got two less seats, as I recall, in the parliament than did Dr. Alawi a longtime favorite of Washington, but never, he just couldn't get the votes required, the 159 or whatever it was in the end? It's a parliamentary system, and um, so the prime minister at the time is a very difficult guy to work with, uh, Nouri al-Maliki. Sure. He won, Tell 90, me about he, won 89, <laughs> he won 89 seats. And um, one of his rivals, Yad Alawi, uh, won 91 seats. Yep. But it, you needed 159. 65 or so, I forget the exact number, yeah. in Parliament to form a government. And they had a debate about, well, 
if Alawi won more seats, does he automatically get to form the government because he has the most seats mm-hmm. right after the election? Yep. And the other side of the argument, well, no, it's a parliamentary system. You have to form a parliamentary mm-hmm. majority. So that went on for a while. As By the time I got out there in July of 2010, um, Alawi, who we would have liked to see prime minister, yep. we tried to do all we yep. could to facilitate it, just wasn't able to collect the seats yep. by which he would have been able to get over the top. So in, in any event, um, Prime Minister Maliki uh, got a second term. So Maliki stays in office. Uh, we now fast forward. Things are still going reasonably well, but we're starting to draw down. It's going and okay. then we get the sort of the crisis of 2011, which is do we stay or do we go? Right. So I left again, and I was working okay. on, on the book project. Uh, and in 2011, uh, the government was tr- work, our government working to ne- renegotiate the SOFA agreement, right. which we had done in 2008, right. which were it not concluded, we would have to leave Iraq at the end of 2011. And I thought that should be easy because the way we had done it, it, didn't, it did not require an elaborate process to go through yep. um, a parliamentary yep. vote. Right. You could do a government-to-government agreement mm-hmm. where you just sign. Call, formally, yep. it's called an exchange of notes. It's how yep. we organize our presence all around the world. That should be easy, and then we can stay. Um, but when I came back in, in July of 2011, I was read into the policy. No, we, were, we had to do a whole new – lawyers at the time interpreted this yep. way. I didn't agree with them. A whole new uh, agreement. So basically, do what we did in 2008 over again. Yeah. In order for us to stay and have the legal mandate to stay, which was excruciating, which was impossible, yeah. it was it would have been yeah. impossible to do. Do you attribute this perhaps to, you know, honestly, a lack of enthusiasm to stay, or I mean, what was the, what was your sense of it? I think it's a fair it's a fair assumption. I think that at the time, um, I mean, there were pro- professions of desire to stay. I was a CIA director, yeah. and they had a sense that sort of like to stay, yeah. but not necessarily. I think there was a, at the time, okay, well, if the Iraqis won't give us what we think we need, um, then we'll leave. Yeah. And there wasn't yeah. a, wait a minute, let's kind of, let's revisit this. It was so, our instructions, myself, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey at the time, um, try to get this done through the Iraqi parliament. Yeah. So that's going to be impossible. Anyway, we tried it, um, and it got to the point where we really ran out of time. So late 2011, we pull everything out. Uh, all the combat troops are gone, little training element stays. Literally within a few days, Prime Minister Maliki pursues highly sectarian actions that begin the process of tearing apart the fabric of Iraqi society, which, of course, would work so hard with him to pull back together, to get the Sunnis feeling as if they had a stake in the success of the new Iraq rather than a stake in its failure. And that's what we had done during the surge, and now he begins to tear it just as a side note, I show up three days after our four-star leaves. The ambassador is on leave, and Baghdad is in crisis because the prime minister has pursued legal charges against the senior Sunni in government, vice president, uh, and all of his security detachment. And over the course of the next year, Iraq just begins to unravel. Al-Qaeda gets back off its stomach on its knees as ISIS uh, and then the Syrian civil war takes off. So why don't you take it from there? Yeah, so when we left, uh, we lost our awareness yep. of what was happening, yep. um, our ability to influence far more so than I probably even anticipated. And what really accelerated the 
the spiral was the Syrian civil war, which we also did not fully yep. anticipate, obviously. Um, just this huge vacuum opening up inside Syria. And with that, and then this gets to the rise of ISIS, um, uh, really like a fever in the region. Mm-hmm. And young men pouring into Syria to fight what they saw as a yep. jihad. Mm-hmm. And ultimately... Uh, the numbers are mine, about 40,000 people from all around the world um, came into Syria to fight this, uh, what they saw as a jihad, honestly. So you start to see uh, a steady indicator we've had over the last decade are suicide bombers, a terrible indicator. But if you have, in, in Iraq, you're always, you have like two to three a month, kind of a steady state. You start to have 40, 50, 60, 70 a month. Mm. And most of those are um, foreign, foreign fighters, the actual mm. suicide bombers. And that just tears apart the fabric of any society. So you start to see this in 2013 yep. really begin to dramatically increase. I was extremely concerned about it. I, at the time, I was in the State Department. Yep. I testified so you're with, deputy of secondary. Right, doing Assistant Iraq. secretary and, now, uh, yep. Doing Iraq and Iran. Yep. Uh, but testified about this, the rise of what yep. we knew as al-Qaeda in Iraq yep. and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and this yep. is a major problem. And I think there were a lot of blinders on to that problem at yeah. the time, frankly. And then they sweep back into Iraq. So January, uh, New Year's Day 2014, uh, ISIS, we now know as ISIS, takes a major city in Iraq, Fallujah, which you uh, know well. Yeah. And um, we worked hard to try to get, actually Maliki at the time was asking us to re-engage militarily. Um, but of course we didn't have any bases We didn't anymore, have any people, so we, we didn't have any legal bases. We had, so it was a real struggle. Um, but we got a few things in there, but not much. Anyway, I, was, I happened to be in Iraq, in northern Iraq, in June of 2014 when Mosul falls. So Mosul is a city of 2 million people, the capital of northern Iraq historically, where I spent most of the first year after the fight to Baghdad as the commander of essentially the occupying force of northern Iraq, a hugely significant city, and only a short drive down the road from the Kurdish regional government capital, the Kurds are other friends. Yeah, so I was in the Kurdistan region at the time, and this okay. was a, and we, we could see it actually coming. Yep. I mean, I remember, I remember quite vividly uh, the warning indicators, and we need to do something about this. Um, in any event, when Mosul falls, the entire Iraqi army security structure basically dissolves, and uh, you start to have this wave of ISIS yep. encroaching on Baghdad. Um, I flew to the embassy in Baghdad. We had a very, immediately, we had a video conference with President Obama. Mm-hmm. And being the man on the ground and you're asked what's going on, I said, honestly, we don't know what's going on. The fog of the, the fog, the friction. The fog of war. We need yeah. to get our people with our eyes on the ground, our special forces in here immediately. And, um, that was a very difficult decision, actually. Yeah. Because that meant we oh, were sure back. We were back engaged. We were, we're reversing a presidential decision. In some of these meetings, we would talk for the first half of the meeting without the president of the room about how to evacuate our embassy. Hmm. And then we would talk in the second half about what we might be able to do to make sure that didn't happen. And I thought, well, that should be flipped. Um, let's try to make sure that doesn't happen. Because even if we do leave here, we're going to have a. Uh, what is a caliphate? Baghdadi had declared yeah. a caliphate, yeah. and this um, this wave of terrorism that was pouring into Iraq and Syria, which we knew would ultimately uh, threaten us. So, 
But I remember, and I was actually in favor at the time, you, just, you had a psychological collapse in the country in Iraq. We, I was very much in favor of, um, of some military action mm-hmm. to, to stem this flow. Yep. And um, that was a very difficult uh, decision. And we also, uh, ironically, Iraq had just had an election. Mm-hmm. Maliki had basically won the election. No question he had won. But he was such a divisive figure by that time that were he to secure a third term, it would be very difficult for the United States to come and rally behind him. Mm-hmm. So I remember President Obama, I was making the case where we need to engage here um, militarily, at least get our eyes on the ground, figure out what's going on, and then figure out a campaign plan. Um, he said, well, we've got to try to get a new government in place so we can really rally behind. Mm-hmm. And I told him that's going to take about 100 days because of the process and how difficult yep. it would be yep. to... Yep. And he said, you got 100 days. So we work, I worked most of that summer trying to hold the line. Yep. We did send some special... But air power, air power was in there as well. Not yet. Because it was really... Oh, not yeah, yet. Not yet. Okay. So new government wow. came in in August. So Mosul falls in June, July, August. Gotcha. Kind of unraveling. We put some special forces in. Um, but every time we had a meeting with the president at that period, it was a question of do we actually cross the Rubicon with mm-hmm. airstrikes to uh, take on this enemy. Um, what really triggered it was we had a, a genocide against Yazidis up in northern Iraq and such terrible, horrific events that ultimately the president made the decision to, um, to do a couple airstrikes. And once we were engaged militarily, we were then in this thing, yep. and then we had to see it through. And so we get back on the ground in Iraq, fairly substantial time to build it all back up and maintain security and all the rest of that. And eventually the advise, the assist, the enable, eventually into Syria. But now you're also, uh, now you're the deputy head of the coalition against ISIS, led initially by our friend General John Allen for the first year, and then you as the deputy. Uh, it's now, what, 75 countries and four international organizations. Um, just give us a sense of sort of the big ideas behind the formation of this coalition and how it's employed on the ground. So President Obama at the time said two things. One, uh, we're not going to do this alone. We're going to do it with states in the region, and we're not going to do the direct fighting. Okay. So we're going to uh, really train and equip locals yep. to go do the fighting. Yep. That was the big yep. uh, that was the big principle. He didn't want a slippery slope in which we get overextended. Yep. So it was really kind of a step-by-step uh, yep. campaign. So on the first to build this coalition, we started with about 12 countries in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was interesting, too, because you get these countries in a room, and we're going to form a coalition against ISIS, which everybody was focused on, of course. But every other country, particularly in that part of the world, has their other enemies they want to take on. So it should mm-hmm. also be a coalition against the Houthis or Hezbollah or PKK. No, this ISIS. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, we eventually formed a coalition starting with 12 countries. Uh, We are successful in getting the Saudis, Emiratis, others to contribute, Mm -hmm. including the initial air Very symbolically important. It was very significant. Yep. And we started to fight back. Yep. So, you know, step-by-step training Iraqi security forces, finding some partners in Syria, which was very difficult. Yep. Eventually to take back what was a state at the time, if you go back to what ISIS had at that time, they controlled territory about 100,000 square kilometers, the size of the U.K. They had 8 million people under their domain. 
and it's mind-boggling to think about, um, revenues of a billion dollars a year. They were planning and plotting major terrorist attacks, yep. we knew, and some of which were carried out in the streets of Paris yep. and Brussels. They were yep. all organized in Syria. They would infiltrate mm-hmm. out and um, carry out these attacks. So it was a very, it was a horrible uh, situation. And to, at the time, even when we had these coalition meetings, most of our partners thought, well, how, how are we actually going to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very step-by-step. We're going to be steady about it. It's going to be this town, this city. Every time we do a military campaign, we need a political stabilization economic plan behind it. And now we are down to really the last. So 99% of this territory has yep. been retaken. Uh, we're down to the last little blotch in, um, uh, in eastern Syria. And uh, we'll get that done. But even after that, you have to sure. see it through. And uh, we have to stay at it. I mean, really an extraordinary achievement when you think about it. Um, And, of course, Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense, adds this very important descriptor, the enduring defeat of ISIS, not just defeat him and then go home and come back, which is a hugely important... So, again, we don't want to repeat the mistreatment. A lot of lessons learned here. And I have to say, um, I was involved in another presidential transition, this last one. Sure. um, Which was also interesting. I have to... from. From my vantage point, it was actually a pretty good transition. Mm-hmm. Um, after the election, uh, of course, John Allen's gone by now. John Allen's so gone. You so are I'm, the I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with, a year. a yep. lot of time with President Obama right. towards yep. the end of his term. So after the election, he said we have to get this right. Yep. Um, I think he's one of them that made the recommendation that I stay on. I'm still not sure how that came about, but actually, I met with Michael Flynn during the transition sure. and talked yep. about the whole situation. Who we and, knew before. Uh, yep. Um, so the, the team asked me to stay on for some continuity, um, which I think I was pleased to do because it was very important. We still had a major battle in Raqqa, which was the headquarters of ISIS. Uh, President Trump said, we want to prioritize this and accelerate the campaign. We did have some ideas ready on the shelf. We yep. said, here are three or four ideas. Worked very closely with uh, Secretary Mattis, mm-hmm. uh, Rex Tillerson at the time, to put together, here's what a package of ideas package of decisions we need to accelerate things. Delegate authorities a little lower to our people on the ground so they can move a little faster, a um, little more burden sharing on the coalition side, some other things. that um, I think a modest increase in the number of forces. Increase in forces. So in any event, all those decisions were made yep. in about March or so, very early okay. in the new administration. And mm-hmm. it allowed, it did accelerate the campaign, there's no question. So I think that transition, if you look at it historically, I think will hold up pretty well, at least on the area that I'm working on. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Well, we're, uh, we will finish the physical caliphate, so that will yep. be that will be done here. I think in a period of months. I don't like yep. to put time frames on it. It's very. I'm, I've been to Syria. Um, I've been into Syria over twenty times now. Um, it is a very difficult situation. Yep. Uh, there's all sorts of geostrategic issues we have to grapple with every day. One I'm grappling with right now, actually. Um, but we will finish that, and then we do talk about the enduring defeat, which means. Uh, and Americans are not fighting and dying in battle. Uh, we are not overextended in terms of our resource base. Mm-hmm. It is a sustainable commitment. In Syria, yep. actually, all the money being spent in Syria in this campaign on the non-military side is coming from our coalition. It's not any U.S. taxpayer dollars actually are not being spent in this. So I'm fairly confident we have a sustainable model here that can endure, meaning that we need to stay present, small numbers of U.S. forces, 
to keep pressure on these networks as they revive. And we have to do that smartly and carefully. Uh, we are there with the consent of the Iraqi government. They've asked us to come, and um, so we have to nurture, nurture that. They have a new government now we're working with. Yep. So we're going to have to stay at it. I, I am fairly confident. I spent enough time up on Capitol Hill that there's, there is bipartisan consensus for this. Um, and so long as we keep it sustainable, low level, yep. it's something, it's kind of like crime. You're, it's never going to get to zero, but you have to stay at it. I mean, for the audience, what I've described this as is a generational struggle. Uh, it's not the fight of a decade, much less a few years. You therefore have to have a sustained commitment, but it can only be sustained in democracy if it's sustainable in terms of blood and treasure. And I would minister. say a big point, and I think you so that we never get in, that. we yeah. never get into these things. I mean, well, trying to change regimes is a bad idea. So yeah. don't, don't, yeah. you know, don't. Let's not don't do another do one lightly. Of these, but we yeah. kind of we are yeah. where we are. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And yep. I think we have it in a decent spot now, and I want to try to make sure that we don't uh, repeat some of the mistakes we've made in the past. Um, Iraq is a country really with enormous potential. Uh, obviously, it generates $100 billion in oil revenue a year, uh, a lot of other blessings, a uh, lot of centrifugal forces pulling it apart, ethnic, sectarian, political, tribal, everything else, but a very important centripetal force, the central government's distribution of the oil revenue. Great new president who we've worked with all the way since the very beginning, Kurd with a PhD from the UK. Great new prime minister. Mm-hmm. Is he going to be able to f- complete the formation of government? So he has his. So we have a new prime minister, new Iraqi government. Um, actually, interestingly, this is the, how the history can turn on an ear. Um, Iraq had an election in May, and the winner of the election, by the most seats, was Maktad al-Sadr, who was fighting uh, General Petraeus' forces not long ago. He has it's become, a very curious yeah, area. So you know, he has your, become your friend a, today uh, is your enemy tomorrow. He and has of course, become a populist, yeah. nationalist figure. Yeah. He's kind of come out of the armed uh, struggle camp. Yep. Um, and so in any event, out of this very difficult election they had, they came out with a new government that uh, is probably the best government they've had in some time. Yep. And um, we're working very closely with it. Uh, they're having difficulty with some of the naming of Minister of Interior, Minister of yep. Defense. This is fairly yep. standard. I think they'll. Yep. I think they'll work through it. What um, one of the questions here? What have we learned out of the fight against ISIS so far? What are the three big ideas that come to mind for you? So the big lesson is, uh, as I mentioned, these groups fill vacuums. Libya, Yemen, Syria, Iraq. So you want to avoid that. So you try to avoid making big strategic decisions that open up these vacuums of which these extremist groups can fill. Yeah, ungoverned spaces ungoverned will space be exploited by Islamist extremists. But what, what we have learned is I think the, and this was something President Obama really drilled into us early on, he does not want American troops uh, fighting in the streets of these cities. We have to get local locals to do it. And will help them, and that it, so um, call it advise, advise, assist, enable. That's yep. really what we've done. Um, the technology is much different than it was ten years ago. Yes. We're able to do things we couldn't do ten yep. years ago with a very light footprint, drones, and all the other capabilities. So in Syria, um, in Syria, basically all of eastern Syria was ISIS, and there was a battle in a town called Kobani, in which we started to work with a small number of, at the time, about thirty Kurdish fighters trying to hold on to this little town, and that 
that expanded. Mm-hmm. And we have about a force in eastern Syria now of 60,000 of Kurds and Arabs. How um, many Americans? You know, about 2,000 Americans on the ground. It's pretty extraordinary. So it is, um, it's quite something. Yep. And, uh, again, I've been in there to see it. It's difficult. Uh, a lot of issues with Turkey and other, you know, of our uh, sure. close allies. Um, but we're working through it. As you know, Syria is not the country in which the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, it's the other way around oftentimes. Uh, very, very complicated. Um, how important is social and economic development in the countries and fighting ISIS, and are we doing a good job of fostering the development of that? It's a huge issue. Yep. Um, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia have really turned to, when you sit with senior Saudi officials now, they'll say, you know, they understand that the heart of the problem here is the interpretation of Islam and uh, what to do with these youth, youthful populations to give them hope and a sense of pride in their own country mm-hmm. and and, uh, and hope, hope for their future. So it is a, a huge issue. There's only so much that we as the United States can do. So in Iraq... You know, a lot of times, if I'm in the region, I go, well, we need a Marshall. We need U.S. direct U.S. investment in giant projects. So that doesn't really that doesn't yeah. really work. So we just had a, a Chamber of Commerce um, visit in Baghdad with 50 American companies to try to harness the private sector and, and encouraging the Iraqi right. government to make reforms to make uh, investment attractive, which is quite critical. So it's a huge issue. The question is, how do you how do you do it smartly? You know, we had this advice all the time as well when we were there, uh, do a Marshall Plan. But, of course, the Marshall Plan worked because you could inv- – there was a pump to prime. Yeah. It might have been physically destroyed, but the human capital was there, the knowledge was there, the experience and expertise were there. That is not the case uh, in these countries. You're exactly right. What's the biggest mistake that you think we've made so far in the fight against ISIS? Uh this particular campaign since 2014, I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. Um, there are some things we might have been able, done differently here and there, but I think it's something that uh, is a model that has worked quite well. Um, if there's a mistake, we started too late. I was just going to say, could we have gone faster yeah. perhaps in the beginning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, could we have kept a footprint in the country? Right. I mean, it's a question that... You know, once it got to that terrible point, yes. I think we've done a good job, but we, yep. we wish the bus wasn't in the ditch to yep. begin with. Yep. Um, a major basis of jihadism uh, is Wahhabi teachings, the ultra-conservative form of Islam, uh, clerics in Saudi Arabia. Uh, how can we curtail this? Are we trying to do that? It's a huge component of the campaign. So I mentioned this, this coalition, and we focus yep. a lot on the military side. Our coalition is organized around military support to partners on the ground, yep. uh, counter-ideology, and that is a huge focus of ours uh, in the Gulf. And you know, have 24-7 counter-messaging centers in UAE and other <coughs> critical countries to actually counter this toxic ideology. Uh, what is being said in mosques is much different now than it was even five years ago. Uh, so it's critical. But our, our coalition is organized around military support to partners, uh, the counter-ideology, countering finance, um, countering travel of foreign fighters. And the Saudis are supporting all this. Saudis have been very good partners on this, actually. Yep. And uh, because these groups are a threat to them. Yep. Now, they have a center uh, that they've created. Can you describe that briefly as well and the role it plays? So, again, in 2014, ISIS propaganda was just 
they kind of had the run of Twitter, media, Facebook, yeah. YouTube, yeah. and we, yeah. so we had to take this on. So we, mm-hmm. we work closely with the private sector on this. Um, actually, Twitter is extreme. I mean, I see it because I follow this. If I see an ISIS site, I report it. They take it off in about two seconds. Um, and they have algorithm, algorithms now that take off things automatically. They've, they've been quite effective. Um, but in Saudi Arabia and in UAE, there are 24-7 centers of people who understand the ideology, who understand uh, the teachings of Islam to directly counter what they're seeing. And native so Arabic speakers. Of course. It's been pretty um, effective. Then speaking about the platforms, so you don't even have to counter it, because you have a question I think is a wonderful question uh, about the exploitation of social media and the Internet to propagate their message, to recruit, to proselytize, to encourage, uh, and so forth. Uh, What can we do to prevent that taking place? Have you engaged uh, Google and Twitter and Instagram and the others? We have, and uh, they are all, as I said, they have computerized programs now that Mm -hmm. recognize this stuff and take it down immediately. It's very difficult on Twitter just to find a pro-ISIS handle. Yeah. They're taken down almost immediately. Um, Not the case three to four years ago. I have actually contended that there should be legislation uh, similar to that which makes child pornography illegal. Would you agree with that, Counselor? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Okay. No, it is. uh, And look, people are there's different strata to how they recruit. I mean, there is the religious recruitment, and then they just recruit to general criminal components in our society through the gore and the mayhem. Yep. Um, but what really drove ISIS recruitment in 2014, 2015, with these huge numbers of people, people bringing their whole families, was actually this, they painted this rosy, you know, come to this historical, sun-drenched uh, caliphate. And it was all false and a lie. Yep. And that's where the... And the Saudis and other partners really countered that um, to say this is there's really no basis in this in Islam. And I think the ideology of ISIS has taken a hit, but it's still around. We have to stay at this. Yeah. Um, you know the old saying that success has a thousand fathers or whatever it is. Um, which president is the father of this particular success? I won't actually read the exact uh, question in this case. Um, I'll but- get myself in trouble on that one. But I would say... <laughs> Uh, President Obama, in the last two years when we got into this, yeah. uh, it, very similar to President Bush in the, those last two years, he was uh, focused on making sure this succeeded. He spent a lot of time with President Obama when we needed adjustments to the campaign. I think we had a pretty good transition to president. Wartime transitions are hard from one party yep. to another. It's a pretty good transition. And um, I would say President Trump's a little more hands-off. Um, delegates a lot, to, obviously, to Mattis and the commanders. Um, which is fine. Which has been, which has worked. Bring it on. Which I mean, I, 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 as you and may and recall, and I wasn't exactly asking for guidance. and I just wanted resources. And a lot of continuity, actually, on the team. So uh, Commander of the Joint Chiefs, General Dunford, yeah, of Commander of CENTCOM, uh, yep. Joe Botel, um, Commander of JSOC, Tony Joint Thomas. Special Operations Command. Yeah, we've, yeah. Had, we've had continuity on the team, which has allowed the campaign to continue. So... Um, We'll see where we go from here. What has kept you doing all this? Because um, I know personally that you've had a lot of different opportunities and offers uh, over the years. Um, there have been private law firms that have beckoned. There have, there's been academia that's beckoned. There have been all these different. No, it's, um, as you know, it's important. Uh, there's a team nature to it. Uh, there are relationships that I have developed 
particularly in the field with foreign partners that I think we can use for our own national interests, which are unique. Um, that said, I mean, I've just, I have a one-year-old daughter, so there's only, there's a lot of spent, she turned eight months, I realize I've been away for four months of the first eight months, which my wife pointed out to me. So you can only do these things for, for so long, but we're still very much at it and want to see the campaign through. Um, but it's very important work. I would just say there are really unsung heroes throughout the government doing this to make sure that we, we get this right every day. I mean, on the ground in Syria, 2,000 Americans, you don't hear much about them. They're doing an amazing job. Uh, soldiers, and we have about a dozen diplomats on the ground. Uh, they're in harm's way, um, but doing terrific work. And that was all ISIS. And in those very attacks, Spartan conditions, too. It's very, it's, it's yeah. not, yeah, there's not like a Taco Bell on base or anything like that. No, no it's very, uh, it's tense and kind of old school. Yep. But Raqqa, when President Trump came into office, they were planning, uh, they, want, they inspired to do a nine, going back to 9-11. That's what they inspired to do. And they had the people and the know-how that were around yep. in Raqqa. And uh, none of those people are still around. I'll put it that way. So. You know, we talk a lot of, in uh, government about selfless service. Um, we talk a lot about the privilege of serving a cause that is larger than self and the privilege of doing it with others who feel the same way. And I hope that all of you have gotten the message from this very quiet, soft-spoken, uh, modest and unassuming, but true hero again, uh, unsung hero, of what it is that we've gone through over the last 17 years, and in particular, what we've done in the last three or four uh, to contend with and then ultimately to defeat uh, a truly dangerous organization, the Islamic State. And this is the president's envoy. He is the glue that has held a great deal of this together. Um, and I hope you understand now why I felt so privileged to introduce him to all of you tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.